Welcome to ASM Connected, the podcast brought to you by ASM Technologies. In Series 3, we sit down with business leaders and futurists from across the globe to discuss what emerging tech means to them, how technology impacts workplace culture, and their advice to businesses on how to stay one step ahead of the competition. In this episode, Ian Tomkinson chats to Oikyu Ishik, who is a professor of digital strategy in cybersecurity at IMD Business School. Her current work focuses on digital resilience, AI trust and transparency, as well as operationalization of digital ethics practices in organizations. They discuss the challenges that emerging technologies present for security and how digital ethics can maintain pace with technological advances. OIQ is a computer scientist by training and earned her MBA in Istanbul and her PhD from the University of North Texas. She designs and delivers programs at IMD Business School, which includes cybersecurity for business executives and digital ethics for senior executives. She has taught in Turkey, USA, Belgium, and now Switzerland. She was also recently recognized on the Thinkers 50 Radar List 2022. Welcome to the show. Glad to have you here. Thank you, Ian. It's a pleasure. All, all the way from sunny Switzerland, by the looks of it. Yeah, exactly. Again, it's a very cold but sunny day, so I am not complaining. Absolutely great. Yes, yeah, better than the uh, the grey rainy days we get here in uh, in the northwest of England. So, uh, but yeah, thank you very much for taking the time out to join me. For for our audience, we're we're sort of uh, um, I've got quite a little bit of a mix of questions. Some of it will be quite low level to some people. Um, we're going to have a real mix of people listening from people who are really, you know, focused on cybersecurity and it's their yeah. full-time day job. And I'm sure we'll have some people who are like me, just learning about it and constantly learning despite 30 years in the industry. I'm still always learning about it. In fact, um, I had a conversation with someone the other day and uh, they said, oh, you've been in the industry for a long time. I'm sure conversations have changed a lot. And I'm like, well, cybersecurity wasn't a conversation 30 years ago. Um, it was just starting to come out and everyone thought that a password was acceptable in those days. And obviously the, the world's changed a lot in that time. So uh, but there we go. I always say it used to be this, uh, even within IT, right, this niche topic that is now... Um, by the day is becoming mainstream, right? Which is something I definitely welcome and I appreciate the most that is uh, maybe the news we hear are not that great most of the time. What hits the media is always incidents around major breaches or so. But the fact that it has made a place in our, I guess, public consciousness is a good sign for making the topic much more accessible for everyone, not just the expertise in cybersecurity. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, awareness is always key, which I suppose uh, brings me to um, to my first sort of warm up question um, just to get us flowing. I did a little bit of research, as I always do, to sort of bring myself up to speed as much as I can on the topic. And um, I'm a big sort of a believer in facts and stats. I love facts and stats. One of the facts I found that was, um, according to Cisco, 80 percent of data breaches and cyber attacks are from phishing. And I suppose my question to you is, could be more achieved by employee engagement and training to prevent those attacks? And are we doing enough in that space? Um, I think it's uh, Bruce Schneier who said, you know, amateurs hack systems, professionals hack people, because it's so much uh, effective and, dare I say, easier to trick 
us human beings into revealing things that we normally would not reveal, right? It's also very easy to catch us off the moment because we don't always make our decisions in a calculated and logical manner. We sometimes do very much autopilot decision-making or emotional decision-making and we fall prey to this, right? So I think this will always be the case. This is not something that's going to go away, but we can do better to coming back to your question. I think there's a lot that we can improve, a lot uh, of low-hanging fruit, so to say, by simply working on uh, what we just talked about, making this an accessible topic in our organizations, right? It's not, I always talk about, maybe it's not enough to just say, say and talk about awareness. Maybe we should switch the conversation from awareness to accountability, mm-hmm. where me as an employee don't say, oh yeah, I'm aware, but I also take responsibility and recognize the consequences of my actions and say, well, it is my accountability to be top of my uh, uh, my game here and be really careful and, you know, have that care- carefulness as a second nature when I see a potentially suspicious email falling in my inbox. So I think we do have a lot we can cover still from an awareness and uh, understanding perspective. But at the same time, I think we also need to realize that we cannot just solely rely on prevention methods, right? We also need to ramp up our response game because at the end of the game, at the end of today, um, threat actors need to get lucky only once, where cybersecurity professionals need to keep up their their game again 24-7. So I think the risk is always going to be there, uh, but we can do better. Absolutely, and I've heard of uh, you know all sorts of tricks over the years. And I remember one, a quite simple one, where the the bad guys would leave a USB stick um, lying yeah. outside the front reception of a, a large corporation. Someone would pick that up and go, "Oh, I wonder what's on that." And they'd go back into the business, they'd plug it into their laptop, and aware that there you go, that they've got you. It's that simple, isn't it? And and it's that education. If you don't know where it's come from, be it a link or be it a, a USB device or, or something else, leave it alone. And I do think that that needs to be. Um, an education process. The variety is really interesting. So we do see this uh, merger between physical security and cybersecurity. And the example you gave is the perfect case for that, right? I mean, uh, how do I breach an institution? So it's your prototypical uh, profile of a hacker hacking away uh, in front of a computer compared to a person walking into an open door building, finding the server room and just plugging in an infected flash drive, right? So this challenge of uh, our enterprise IT systems being also so accessible from a physical perspective uh, for those organizations that is still the case is definitely an element. And the other element is that these damages are not necessarily done by just black hat hackers, but you also see your typical criminal actors uh, your mafia going digital in one sense, wow. right? So because some of these threats are very accessible, uh, that any criminal actor can purchase these things and start infecting. Uh, unfortunately, we do observe the development of a very lucrative market. So the, the, the demand and the attention uh, in that in that business model is unfortunately something we see growing. 
Wow, that that's um, that's quite. I suppose I've never heard it uh, that sort of term before. The uh, the digital or, or the the mafia, but that that's quite scary actually. If you think of, uh, you know, I, I suppose it is a modern day mafia, isn't it? And um, yeah, that is quite worrying. There was a very interesting case from several years back, though, in Belgium, in the port of Antwerp, how. A mafia, literally a, a drug cartel, hired a software developer to automate the process or, or to, to automate the process of finding the containers that include uh, the shipped over drugs. Uh, and they were for several years managed to stay two steps ahead of the police because they were always much more efficient in finding the right container until the moment that they were they were caught red-handed. So that's another example of using these digital capabilities for their digital transformation, I guess, in this case. Yeah, I always believe in uh, if you try and make something idiot-proof, all you do is, tr- is create a better level of idiot. And I suppose that's exactly the same thing. They're always that, that one step ahead as, as such. Yeah. And, and I suppose, obviously, ransomware in particular has evolved since it first emerged significantly. And our defensive has improved, and, and I suppose that, uh, I suppose talking about it in the press and the media has helped with that. But what else can be done to reduce the impact and the leverage, the threat that ransomware poses, really? Yeah, that is, uh, it is a fascinating topic, I think, because it's evolving so fast and it's a little bit different than your other typical cyber threats like a, a phishing email or a denial of service attack is that the social element and the extortion element is so heavily relevant in this one, right? And I think there are two things to keep top of mind. How do we maximize our preparedness is one dimension. And how do we minimize their gain? Because I think they are not always the same when action does not always accomplish both, right? Because this is, again, unfortunately, a market that there's a big money in. So how do we actually minimize our chances of uh, being infected? That's one. But also the other thinking is how do we make sure somehow that we don't validate the business model? Because I think there was a very interesting uh, report uh, by ISC Squared, uh, if I'm not wrong, talking about how uh, we get into this vicious cycle with ransomware. If more and more organizations pay the ransom, manage to get their data back, uh, more organizations will be willing to pay the ransom and thus more criminals will be attracted to get into this market, right? So this seems like this never-ending uh, a nightmare in one sense. So, of course, from a response perspective, the first thing that comes to mind is how do we make sure that nobody pays so that we don't validate that, that business model? And I, I, I am uh, very well aware that it's easier said than done. We always recognize that if you're an organization that is caught unprepared, payment is, of course, a valid option. But... How do we come to a point that we can very comfortably say we don't engage, we immediately, you know, we take stock, we restore from our backups. And I think that requires a more maybe international but collective response, right? I mean, can we get to a stage where every organization says, I know where to turn to 
I now have this problem in my hands, but I know where to turn to. I don't need to engage with, with criminals. Um, and for that, of course, we come down to the preparedness aspect of these things, right? Uh, even simple backup strategy or the response pro process in the organizations, there are still things that we can improve. But I think we should also be more willing to share as an organization our experience with I think if you ask me what the biggest problem is, I would say the silence is the biggest problem at this at this stage because we don't learn from each other's experiences, which means we don't get to learn the new tactics threat actors might be working on. So we also need to find a way uh, to share our experiences without being penalized just because we share the experience. Yeah, and uh, I suppose I see you know cybersecurity is a huge topic and uh, there are uh, often different areas that there's i suppose you want to stop it to start off with but it's also once they're in what is the protocol that everyone should be following you yes. know where where is the gap you know are you still vulnerable um that there's a whole load of things and i suppose i've also noticed from some of the reading cybersecurity both content um both in in media and and speaking to uh, some of the cybersecurity vendors that we work with, I've learned that often companies are are unaware of attack when it's actually happened. They might not only learn of that breach months down the line when their data is often auctioned on the dark web. Um, they suddenly get an email saying, here's a copy of your data. Um, I've got it and I've had it for a while. Again, coming to that awareness, you know, is there enough awareness that that, that is a problem? But also, is there enough investment into, I suppose, post-breach technologies and education, or is it just deemed as, I suppose, a damage limitation exercise once people have found that that breach there? And I've got multiple sort of angles from that, but I'll uh, I'll let you answer that question. Um, yeah, it's. I think the example you gave is almost like a, a testament to the detection capability. I, I think I also saw a very interesting statistics. It was by IBM, I think, talking about how on average, it's a big average, right? That it takes more than 200 days for an organization to realize that they they have experienced a breach. So indeed, if you're seeing a ransom notice on your screen, it often means that they have already been lurking in your network for a while now, several, several weeks. Uh, that, that means they know their, your finances, they know your pain threshold in terms of how much ransom they can ask from you. They know your... Um, whether you have a cybersecurity insurance or not, they know whether you have connected backups or not, because the objective is, of course, is to minimize your options so that you kind of feel in the corner and are more drawn to, to payment, right? So in that sense, the detection capability uh, that there's a, there is someone in your network that shouldn't be there becomes, becomes very, very, very important. So that detection, but also, like you said, the response mechanism, right? So incident response plan. Um, if I compare my experiences over the last two years, when I teach specifically about this topic, uh, if my classroom the executives here are, are a sign of, of you know, average maturity, I can tell you that more and more organizations do have an incident response plan, right? But I think uh, it is one thing to have such a document for compliance reasons and have it available sitting somewhere, but it's another thing to spend time and invest time and resources in one, doing scenario building exercises and say, well, what do we do if it's ransomware versus what do we do if it's, if it's business email compromise? So different threat uh, 
um, threats out there may require different responses. So do I think detailed enough about this and exercise and practice about this? And the other thing is, of course, um, that we hear a lot in failing is this, this whole thing around restoring from backups. I've heard cases where uh, this restoration process fails, right? So it's the same uh, comment here about do we simulate restoring from our backups? Do we exercise the process of doing this? Because I, I think it's, again, not enough to just think about it once, but we really need to make sure that it's ingrained in our minds that we know at that moment, at that moment what to do. Uh, but in general, to wrap it up and, and, and bring it back to what you asked about detection capability, I think overall, um, still, we are way too much focused on investing in prevention technologies, um, whereas there is clearly a lot of value in also focusing on more proactive capability building and say, well, this will happen to me sooner or later. So let me hope for the best, but prepare for the worst and invest also in my detection and response and recovery capabilities, right? I think that's uh, uh, one thing we will see sooner that, that shift of organizational investment. I suppose everyone will view it as a, a, what they call a black swan event, won't they? When, when, they, when that event happens, but ideally, you want to be, I suppose, in, in some ways, like a, the muscle memory needs to be trained to respond to that. And the technologies, you need to be familiar with those technologies. If you were using Microsoft Teams or something on a day-to-day -day basis, you need to be able to go in and do that. And something interestingly that I, I hear quite a bit about, um, I don't know a great deal on the topic, but I'd be interested to get your thoughts on it, is that there's so many different cybersecurity tools out there, you know, uh, ransomware protection, there's um, identity protection, there's uh, network, it, you know, you can name various different tools that people use at different stages in the network. But that all that does is actually cause what I've heard described as app fatigue, where the, the cybersecurity guys are looking at and they're getting alerts from all over the place that sometimes there's too much noise there. They become so um, familiar with these alerts all the time that it, it, it's just too familiar and that's where things get through. Um, is, is that something that you've ex you can explain or experienced? There are several examples of that indeed these um, messages or warnings from some of these applications being ignored yeah. or being treated as false alarm, whereas, like you said, they are actually uh, a real threat is there, right? Um, I think cybersecurity in general has a very active startup scene as well. Yeah. Uh, part of the reason is, of course, the development in AI and machine learning or technologies in general, because we also need more innovation in terms of automating some of these technologies, right? So I think that active landscape will always be there but i heard someone um one of the one of the research organizations expertise in cybersecurity commenting about how they predict a more consolidation in the market eventually where there's just too many small fish that it will eventually uh, consolidate further um so i do believe these are similar to growing pains sort of uh, in, in, in the industry that we will see more of this behavior but at the end of the day i think 
Um, it is a strategic choice on the side of the organization. If I, as an organization, can manage to do a risk management approach to cybersecurity, if I know my assets well, if I can prioritize which of these assets are the highest priority, how much of my resources I should be able to devote to protecting these assets, this or that. So if I can quantify the risk to the best that I can, and if I can actually prioritize and choose accordingly, then I think the chances are I will minimize that noise in that in that process. Um, because of course, uh, the, the, this, this, this technological approach will always be there, and we do welcome automating some of these some of these processes. But I think as an organization, the best we can do at this stage is to keep an eye, a very active eye on the market, and regularly revisit our risk assessments methodology, risk assessment approach. So we see, you know, are we still where we were three months ago, six months ago? Do we need to reassess anything? Do we have the capabilities in house to manage? these priorities or do we need to invest in etc we often see that also investing in what we talked a couple of minutes ago behavioral aspects cultural and awareness training related aspects in cybersecurity always has a much higher return on investment than investing in yet another technological solution that may do the, the thing that i already have something for right it's, it's a very much of a uh, I think mindset mindset issue too. Yeah, and uh, I was actually interested. I was um, I, I met uh, a friend for for, for lunch um, uh, when, when I was uh, in London last, and uh, we were talking about the cybersecurity. And he was saying you'd be surprised how many mid market large organisations that will have a breach. Um, you then called in to say, you know, how can you help us? You, you come up with a plan. You you put a, a figure to solve that problem in front of them. They go, oh yeah, we we, we can't do that. Um, and it's like, well, you've got a problem. You've already been impacted by that problem, and your you know your reputational damage is far greater than that figure that's on that piece of paper. And and that again, that's an educational thing at sea level, isn't it? Um, and, and it's just that awareness. It's unfortunately, in like you said, we do most of the time see the biggest investment in cybersecurity after an organization experiences something yeah. uh, nasty in that space, right? We always invest in AI, this or that, any new shiny tool, and we are very much impressed by the value proposition of these technologies that we don't really like to think of what can go wrong scenarios as we are evaluating these technologies. This is always an afterthought, um, which ends up being an issue. And only after that, we do see this major investments, unfortunately. Yeah, and I suppose um, in terms of, um, of, you know, there's been some surprise shocks back end of 21, 22, um, and we've seen deep data breaches um, from leading tech companies. SolarWinds was very well publicized in the cybersecurity landscape because they are a, a cybersecurity company. Um, Cisco were impacted, Twilio, which is a, a startup, a, a large startup by all means. And, and I suppose, should we be looking at the vendors and partners we work with more closely? And what should we consider looking for? Is there any particular things that we should look for to give us some comfort that our data is going to be secure when we're engaging with these kind of vendors? Um, there are so many things we can talk about in this, right? There is one thing, because I always hear the question around cloud service providers as well, that you gave the SolarWinds or Kaseya uh, uh, examples. Um, of course, 
clearly their level of investment in talent and, and technical infrastructure just to ensure cybersecurity is by far larger than any other organization, right? I mean, this is part of their value proposition. It's in their uh, identity as an organization. That's what they do. Uh, so definitely the trust is there towards cloud service providers and should be there, but we should never forget that they are not unbreachable. And the examples we saw, like SolarWinds, is an, is an example to that. And the, the damage is, of course, maybe their breach happens much more rare uh, than, than any other organization. But then when a breach happens, the consequences are, are far, far, far bigger. Um, there, though, if you are getting breached through cloud, I remember reading about it uh, uh, in another research, I think it was by Cisco as well, talking about how misconfiguration is still the number one reason why you have a breach through your cloud service provider. So that always makes me think of this shared responsibility model that we have with our cloud service providers. Is that really clear enough? Do we have discussions around this? Is it crystal clear who does what, whose responsibility is what, right? That, that's what makes me think from a specifically a cloud perspective. But of course, supply chain hacks have been around for much longer, right? I mean, the, I always give the example of Target as one of the biggest high profile supply chain attack how this supermarket chain got breached through air, air conditioning maintenance supplier uh, a very small organization that got breached there was a connection between the network so the um, attackers were able to jump through the networks that challenge is, is is still is still here a most recent example i remember reading is the train service being halted in denmark a few weeks ago not because the train operations organization got breached, but one of their software developer partners was breached. And this partner had the oversight for the software that allows drivers to have visibility on the network. So when they were down, the whole visibility over the train network was down. As a consequence, the whole train network was down. So we do see this interdependency of our business models. And consequently, our systems are also interdependent, right? But for some reason, we still treat these systems as independent. When, when we think of cybersecurity, we just like throw this mental perimeter around our network, right? But actually, that is much wider than we most often thought, think of. We also need to make this part of the conversation because their vulnerability may end up being our vulnerability to too. So coming back to your question on the conversation, I think it should become um, a core part of the business conversation uh, when you are at the very early stages of the relationship building, when you, when you are really talking about how and uh, why of the, of the partnership in this case. Uh, I know some organizations have been working on having a question list, for instance. What are the things that I should ask my this, this third party? Uh, do they have multi-factor authentication? Do they encrypt their data? Do their employees go through awareness training? Uh, even these seemingly simple and high-level questions, I think, give a very clear vision of the topic and its place in the organization. Are they taking this seriously? Is this something they actually invest in? Uh, do they do drills? Do they do these phishing simulations, right? Even asking about these things 
gives you an idea of their posture, but also sends the message that this is important for you, right? Uh, because when the day comes, you should be able to also audit and understand their uh, security posture too, because it has implications for you. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And uh, I think, you know, one of the, the, the strangest stories I heard was uh, of someone coming in through, through a different route was um, a casino in, a, in Las Vegas got hit and they got hit by the fish tank. They had oh, a... Yes. Yeah. They had a th- in the fish tank. I wrote the story. Yeah, yeah. And it, that was just like, wow, that is, yeah, that, that's unbelievable. But, uh, you know, uh, those IoT devices that are starting to appear, you know, um, smart homes, you know, it, it's that security mindset around those, isn't yeah. it? And, and I suppose moving the topic on a little bit, we, we talked on emerging tech and innovation. One of the things I thought of the other day and, and, and kind of uh, I was talking about in the office with my colleagues was, was quantum computing because that's aired as the potential game changer. Uh, we're going to get faster machines. Um, we'll be able to do lots more computational um, development. Um, it's a huge step for, for uh, I suppose, the industry, f- for humans and how we can work. I then thought, well, however, if systems can solve complex problems far faster than current systems... Does that not pose a huge threat to the current type of encryption that protects our data at the moment? Because if they can solve it in minutes, then potentially our current encryption needs a rethink. Uh, Thank you for bringing that up. This is a topic that I find fascinating and it's kind of always on the corner of my mind because I want to also um, understand better, learn better and and develop content on this. Because I think this is very, very um, first interesting and game changer, like you said. And indeed, it does pose a problem for, for, for encryption capability, right? And there are also several cases where comments from threat actors were picked on where they say, oh, we are extorting, exfiltrating data. Even if it is encrypted, we're just sitting on it. When we have the capability to decrypt, then we will uh, get to get the value out of this. So there is definitely this concern around what will happen when we have the capability to just, you know, uh, just like that, in a matter of minutes and hours, be able to decrypt some of the most impactful encryption methodologies we have now. But I was just also reading the other day, and I've learned that uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, already has more than 60 um, potential new methods that they are assessing now that they call post-quantum cryptography. Right? So the, 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 the encryption methods that actually uh, even quantum computing cannot that easily solve. So wow. why don't we use quantum capabilities to come up with new encryption methods? Mm. Uh, so apparently this is something they are also actively thinking about. Yeah, and I suppose the challenge is there that you're trying to work with the technology to put it in place for something that isn't already there yet so you're kind of working a lot in principle aren't you rather than you can't actually test it and, and theory because quantum computing isn't quite there yet so oh. there are challenges there but, but yeah I, I think um i think that investment because you know if it's not in the next 10 years or the next decade that technology is going to come forward because there will be a breakthrough at some point to make that um there and we all know um, I suppose the biggest challenge I see with some of these technologies is 
it's not the technologies and our ability to build those. Sometimes it's the legislation around getting those technologies to the market. So quantum computing is currently been working on loads of investment there. However, if we don't develop the security to prevent those issues from coming from at the same pace, that's when we have a challenge. And particularly if we legislate that those technologies aren't correct, then that causes a bigger problem. And I suppose that brings me on to, a, a, I suppose, a, another topic about AI, because I know that's something you're you're hugely mm-hmm. interested in as well and uh, something that I, I'm fascinated by about as well, particularly from you know, different angles, be it ethical, um, yeah. be, be it, uh, and uh, I was having a conversation again the other day with somebody and um, the chap was, has got a master's in, in philosophy and uh, he asked a question about, well, you know, what if AI could outthink humans and blah, blah, blah. And I went, well, actually, no, that's not possible because AI is just a really well written piece of code. Or is it? Um, and that's how we sort of came. I do think that AI is just code, and I think that's its limitation. Um, I don't think it will ever outsmart humans. I think it can surface things um, that we might not see, but I don't think it's going to outsmart us unless you have got a different opinion. <laughs> no, I'm on that on that on that same camp with you. Uh, and it's such an interesting discussion because we also have some really impactful thought leaders that take the other camp, right? They say, oh, we should be worried about this. Now, that being said, I think AI is more than just a well-written bit of code. Uh, we have been talking about this for a very long time now, right? I mean, AI as a concept uh, was literally introduced by Alan Turing and when he described this thinking machine, right? And his thinking uh, Turing test is all about this. Uh, but why now suddenly we have seen this amazing developments in the field? Because AI is not just software development, but it's also combined with computing power, which is now almost like a commodity, right? Everybody can have access, uh, rather affordable prices to, to great computing power. Algorithm development is also becoming quite, quite commodity. We have already... Uh, very efficient algorithms on the public domain. It's very easy to get to, 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 to have access to, hire someone who can go, uh, code. What is not yet commodity, yet we are in great need of for good AI, is data, right? Lots and lots and lots of data. And there is lots of data out there. That's why we see all these developments. But now the race in AI between organizations really comes down to who has access to this uh, data first, so good data, high quality data, lots of it, and unique data. That's what's going to change the uh, course of an AI program in an organization. So, and also what is also new about AI is this feedback loop to coming back to this, this coding capability, um, which is a great capability for AI to adapt this feedback loop in, that enables the machine to self-learn. But at the same time, it can also do be the reason why we have these ethical challenges around this. If we let this thing decide by itself and go on its own way, then what are the consequences, right? Uh, so ethical dimension that you mentioned can have multiple root causes why something may go uh, wrong with AI. Uh, but I know that we need more philosophy uh, majors in the field to help us figure this out and construct us a way to think about these challenges because we know that it should not be 
only led by data scientists and software developers. Yeah, and that that oh that that's such a wide subject, and, and particularly an area that I've got really interested in is is the data aspect behind AI and how that treats it. So, uh, you know, I've been speaking to people about synthetic data a lot recently because that brings a whole new level up for us to be able to analyze data and to put that data into the AI process without it having the GDPR issues that, that a lot of companies are restricted with. So in terms of the ethics within healthcare, um, data is absolutely crucial. I learned something recently that really surprised me, but the topic, I suppose, how data algorithms can really create bias. Um, I'll share this with you because I, I, th- I think it was uh, it was such a great story and uh, I've got quite a lot of references here, so just just bear with me. And I suppose this, this is a real-life medical um, challenge with, with data, and it was around the determination of kidney disease and how the stage is largely reliant on the use of something called estimated GFR. Um, I'm not a medical expert, um, so please bear with me on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and apparently in its current standard practice to calculate this GFR using algorithms that assess patients based upon multiple factors that potentially influence the renal function, mm-hmm. i.e. the functionality of the, the kidney. And these points that they use to create this include age, sex, height, weight, and creatine level, and also includes race and ethnicity. Um, and, and that's according to the Cleveland Clinic um, for, from, from just last year. Creatine is a waste product produced by um, metabolism of dietary protein and muscle degeneration. So levels are indicative of renal function, and this must be removed by the kidneys. Incorporation of race was implemented to emulate research conducted in the 1990s that found that black people have higher levels of creatine in their blood than their white counterparts, according to Kidney Research UK. This translates to a multiple factor of 1.159 for GFR when the patient identifies as black ethnicity on the paperwork. According to the American Society of Transplantation, the adjustment made by the algorithms and AI for race allocates an eGFR for black patients that is higher than other ethnicities for the same blood level of creatine, causing the assessed level of kidney function to be inflated and stage of disease progression is predicted to be lower than the actual level. So basically, what is the the inequality in the eligibility for transportation has an enormous impact on the number of black individuals who receive a donor kidney one year following renal failure. So whilst 22.7% of white patients undergo transplantation surgery within this duration, the same fate occurs for only 6% of black patients, making them four times less likely to receive a transplant and more likely to remain on dialysis as their primary management for the disease. So where I'm going with this example is how do we measure and audit the data and algorithms that make AI effective? And is quality data the bigger issue rather than the technology itself? Um, that was such an interesting example, and so many layers of that that could be could be examined, yeah. right? And that, sorry, that was a very very simple version of, of that conversation because it, it yeah. was highly medical, but condensed down, it was basically yeah that 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 data was incorrect. 
Um, it is so interesting that you say this because we are now working on a research uh, proposal that looks into building trust in AI, especially in, for instance, in Africa, communities in Africa, where data sharing on healthcare data is very limited due to lack of trust, but also, of course, due to lack of infrastructure, right? Proper infrastructure for data collection means. So when digital transformation progresses so fastly, as you said, say in Europe, where the data availability is so significantly better in Europe, then of course, all the systems you develop will be pro whatever data you collect from here, right? So that is not a bias you introduce knowingly, but then it becomes unrepresentative data when you want to develop AI and apply it a global scale, then the first thing you can pay attention to is try and have data at global scale, right? That is the indeed data related aspects to it. Um, there are many methods organizations can implement uh, from a control and auditing perspective. And that's something else going on from a research perspective on my table. Now we are conducting interviews with organizations that are going public or don't hesitate to talk publicly about their initiatives on this topic. Let's not even just say AI ethics, but digital ethics in general. And we are talking to these organizations that seem to be paving the road. And a couple of things that we always hear as best practice is the formation of some sort of a auditing committee. And this committee could be purely internal, this could be internal slash external, or this could be purely external. So just this extra set of eyes to give an unbiased perspective of whatever AI project that is being discussed on the table. The other thing we keep hearing, which is great, is training on mm -hmm. data scientists, training for uh, data scientists and software developers, because we know that given the current curriculum in our high education uh, systems, we don't always teach them ethical data practices. We don't always teach what it means to code in an ethical manner, right? So this training and making sure that this topic is accessible and is taken as a part of their responsibility is, is another best practice that I hear a lot for, for, for organizations, organizations do. And the other thing we know is that this whole auditing and controlling for ethical practices should not remain within the data science or AI team domain. We do need cross-functional teams to actually go through this de-biasing, either a data set or an algorithm or a project, what have you, right? We do need multiple perspectives of people and diversity of the team, right? Not in terms of age, gender, uh, or, or ethnicity, but diversity in terms of their education, their work experience, you need as many different perspectives as possible because that's the best way really to catch bias in, in whatever you are developing. So these are a couple of things that I'm hearing a lot around me these days, but it is still a very young field that we are still observing a, you know, a very fast development in. Yeah, and I think as well, I think at the moment you've got, I think you've got the, the people who want the data sitting on one side also, then you've got the data scientists on the other side and that lack of sometimes collaboration between the two. And yeah. because I know in, in our organization, someone can bring some data and put it in front of me and I'll just look at it and go, that's wrong. Um, because 
I, I know that certain things will have spiked that data and bent it out of shape because I, I know the business. I might not know how to get it out of the system, but I, I will know the, the things that are causing that data to be bent out of shape. And I think that's where we, we need to bring the, the users and the data scientists together more, I think. Absolutely. Um, because you've got the people who then can understand the data, not just get it out of the system and surface it well. Um, so yeah, so that, that's interesting. And I suppose, um, again, a topic that I, I'm, I've spoken a lot about on, on the podcast series um, with, with people from, from all different backgrounds about, I suppose, that legislation, again, that we, mm. we touched on before. Um, and that legislation being able to keep up with technology such as AI, should there be, uh, I suppose, uh, should we police and set rules for its use? Because that there are definite places where you wouldn't want AI to be purely making the decision. I know, you know, uh, IBM Watson, um, you know, that, that was doing some fantastic things to help with, with um, a cancer diagnosis. And I think it yes. improved the, the, um, the, the rate of diagnosis by something 80% in touch with a, uh, an oncologist. However, you just wouldn't want to leave it on its own. And perhaps we need to guide some rules. What are your thoughts on, on setting those rules and guidelines? Indeed, that, that's a very interesting and dynamic topic too, this legislation. I'm definitely very much a pro-European approach here because when I look around, I see that self-regulation does not work, especially when we look into what we see in social media, uh, how it impacts people's trust in big tech, um, what we see, what's happening with deep, uh, deep fakes, how when not kept under control, it could end up being used in very harmful situations, right? So I do think we need a governing system for this. Yes, I do think we need regulations for this. And AI Act, however imperfect it may be, is, I think, a step in the right direction that we need to categorize. Not every AI is, of course, created equally. Some work with sensitive data, some not, right? So even coming to the decision of, okay, which of these AI systems will I consider as sensitive? And what does it look like for me to audit these systems? Who will audit these systems? How do I ensure that an algorithm, which may be the uh, competitive advantage of an organization is kept as such? How do I do this auditing without crossing certain boundaries, right? So these are all super valid questions. And I, I'm not sure if there are answers for, right? But the fact that we are thinking about these things, uh, the fact that we are in Europe banning uh, biometric using AI systems, for instance, is I think a step in the right direction gives a right message. And the question that opposes to this always, oh, what if? What about innovation, though? <laughs> will it will it kill innovation? I don't think that 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 is the case. We have always been very resourceful, and we have always been very creative in also constrained environments in other situations, right? So I'm pretty sure uh, we can, and we should be able to find a way to also innovate under under these conditions. Because what these regulations do basically just put human privacy, human dignity, and our own right to control data about ourselves in the center of the development about these technologies. So I think that's definitely a lot of improvement uh, needs to be done. The, the whole experience with GDPR is a, is a great example of that, how most organizations still struggled with interpreting some of the, some of the 
what, what that legislation meant, right? How do we make the new ones better is something still I think is on us to decide, but I am a definitely big supporter of legislating these technologies. Yeah, and uh, coming back to our, our, our earlier conversation, and I think legislation and a lot of things is not joined up across territories. And I think, you know, uh, I know uh, the UK following Brexit has probably got a different approach to the Europe. Europe's mm-hmm. certainly got different rules to the US. Um, and I suppose going back to that ransomware question for, from right at the beginning of our conversation, um, from what I understand, I think in the US it's illegal to pay the criminals, and in the U- in Europe it's not. Um, and there's, so you can wriggle out of that but in, in a number of different ways. You just get a, a company in Europe to pay the bill for you um, or your European entity to pay the bill and then you're scot-free. It's, yeah. It's it is bit... also such a gray zone. I, I don't think it's not illegal to pay in US. It is highly discouraged by FBI. It's the same indeed in Europe. As far as I know, uh, just last week, I read on the news how Australia is making it or thinking about making it illegal to pay. That's the first literal decision from a legal or legal perspective, right? As far as I'm concerned, for most countries, it is a very, it's, it's a gray zone uh, from a ransomware uh, payment uh, perspectives. And of course, the statistics around this is also very, uh, uh, is they are not reliable because still most organizations don't even report their experience. So we don't have a very clear picture of how many, how much, et cetera, around payments. Um, but I think more and more countries will be forced to take a stand, right? Make a choice about, do we actually turn a blind eye to this as it is right now? Or do we actually uh, uh, make it illegal to pay, but then also provide sensible support to organizations who are impacted by this. If, if I'm taking the payment option away, then I should be able to provide a, a, a good amount of support so that they actually recover from this with minimal damage, right? Yeah. And, and again, you know, again, we, we, we could chat for hours about some of these topics and uh, you touched on deep fakes there and obviously AI is having a big part to play in that. Yeah. And I, I'm just, um, th- there's been a lot of, uh, of publicity in the media here in the UK about um, the, the use of people's identities for, for, for whatever reason. And um, I, I think there's been a famous um, deep fake on, on, I've seen it on YouTube of Tom Cruise and someone sort of mimicking Tom Cruise. And I showed it to a colleague the other day and they were like, wow, if that's false, that that's absolutely amazing. And I suppose it comes down to the fact that somebody is using his brand, his, uh, you know, Tom Cruise's image, his, his image rights, um, could be promoting anything that goes against what he stands for. Um, you know, it, it's that legislation that there's still nothing in place to protect people from that. Um, and I do think that technology is moving at such a pace. I do think we de- need a different approach um, and a faster, I suppose, call to action from the lawmakers to put these things in place to protect, as we discuss people yeah. in particular. I totally agree with you on the sense that only regulation or legislation is not going to be enough for this, right? So we, especially big tech, needs to take more responsibility about the consequences of these developments. But uh, going from deepfake, there is, it seems, light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, um, Apparently, Intel has been working on a method 
that can automatically identify whether a video is original or deepfake. Because at this stage, it's just you and I, our eyes are much better equipped to identify the video we're watching. Is it real human being or is it deepfake? Uh, but of course, given the amount of deep fake videos out there, we need to automate this process somehow. And that's what researchers at Intel has been working on to use a certain type of technology that recognizes the blood flow under our, uh, under, underneath our skin. So wow. blood flow on our face, so taking signals to identify that this is actually a real human being. This is not a, a faked video. So that that was very interesting for me to read also. Uh, that gave hope in a, in, a, in a way. But like you said, we also, just because there's legislation doesn't mean that this will all go away, right? We also need to uh, have our own due diligence and take responsibility in the models that we are developing as organizations. Yeah. Uh, and there's a third side to this, to this equation, I think, um, that has been so far feeding into some of these this challenges is lack of awareness or understanding in the overall public when it comes to what AI is or what deepfake is or in general what these technologies can do, right? When this is so far away from me as a topic and I, it is, it is, I find it too complicated and I refuse to engage and learn, right? But maybe this is going to get better because now we have the generations who were born into this technology. So that's by default is going to get better in time. But I think also is a responsibility on the organizations, especially those who are active in the high tech domain to provide this clarity, understanding and training and, and educate the people who are uh, maybe impacted by these technologies that they are putting it in the market. Okay, that's fascinating, and uh, yeah, I'll I'll try and uh, find that article on uh, on Intel and the deepfake because yeah. it's something that I'm personally interested in. Uh, yeah, that that that's uh, that's that's really cool if they've got that. But as we said before, once you uh, they find a way of uh, finding that, I'm sure there'll be someone else that will come out with a technology to put into the deepfakes to try and trick it. Because as you say, as we started off, it's a cat and mouse game at the end of the day. Absolutely, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my, my, I suppose my, my last sort of main question for you, you know, bearing in mind, I suppose, the sales, uh, the, the audience that, that we have, a lot of people will be involved with um, customer engagement. So they'll be working with end users um, in a cybersecurity environment. They'll be advising them. They'll be um, having conversations about how they can add more value. If you were in the shoes of a cybersecurity person going into a a, a large corporation, an enterprise uh business um, on behalf of a, a, a reseller or a large global systems integrator, how would you start the initial conversation um, with a prospective customer? I find this question super hard because I never saw myself as being, being in sales, right? This is a, it's a, it's a special set of skills and, and, and clarity in communication, I think. It's also absolutely critical there. But I think um, the thing that I relate this to most is outside in versus inside out perspective. Instead of trying to push my product, I think I would try and understand the context much better because every organization is challenged with not, not one, but many things. If I, as a, as a, as a representative of a vendor, can um, be a trusted advisor, maybe take off that head of mine, but help them somehow 
understand the priorities, help them prioritize and help them choose. I think that would be a super value add for most organizations because I think they just don't know where to start from. So helping them find a place to start from is, I think, super valuable for, you know, regardless of what kind of uh, product or vendor or, or, or solution that you're represent, representing there, but helping them understand the challenge better and helping them prioritize would be a super value add in my opinion. And for someone who's not done a sales job before, that was a very, very good answer, by the way. Um, because I, I would always tell my team, always try and listen, you know, listen, find the pain points, be that trusted advisor. Yeah. And sometimes be prepared to walk away if you can't help as well, because you never know when you'll, you know, you'll get that call to go back in. And if you said, no, I can't genuinely help with that, um, they'll respect you for that. And, and uh, they will actually trust you more and engage you more next Absolutely. time around. That's a very, that's super valuable advice to be prepared to walk away. Exactly. Right. Because if you're not really solving a, a problem for them, then, then, then we should rethink our value proposition at that moment. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, I suppose that, that sums it up nicely. It's all about trust at the end of the day. And uh, I know that the term zero trust is used a lot in cybersecurity, but, uh, but yeah, no, we need to develop more trust, which is what it's all about. So um, just a couple of very quick fire questions that, that we like to end up with just uh, as a bit of fun. Um, so are you all in with AI or is it a no thank you from, from you? It depends on what for, right? But given... The example that I read every day, given the mindset that I'm in, in my research, I would say no thank you for the moment if this AI is actually using personal data. Okay. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. No. Interesting. And uh, last but not least, the question I ask all our guests is, what's your favorite tech gadget? Difficult to choose, but I, uh, as, a, as an avid gamer, I think I'm really enjoying my VR Headset. Oh wow! That's what I. That's what I would propose, and uh, I had to find a way around it because I acquired it when uh, it was still mandatory to have a certain social media account. So I had to create fake accounts and not give personal information to find a way around it. But nonetheless, this is something I enjoy a lot. So I would say the VR headset. Yeah, you're not the only person who's actually said that. We, we've got a couple of yeah. VR uh, enthusiasts. And uh, I've, um, in the new year, we've got, um, we're attending our very first customer event in the metaverse, wow. um, which I'm super excited to do because I've not done anything like that before. I'm not a gamer. Um, you know, I, I have dabbled on the Xbox badly um, at some point. <laughs> Um, and, um, yeah, I just don't think I've got the fingers and thumbs for it. Um, but yeah, no, I'm super excited to be sort of, uh, engaging with a customer and feeling yeah. what that, that, that experience is like considering, you know, I'm old school and I'd rather be in front of people working with people. Cause that's what I enjoy. Then I'm sure it will be really, uh, life-changing for you, hopefully in the positive way. Right. So it will be a very, really new in the in the in the meaning of the sense it will be a really totally new experience for you and i hope you enjoy it yeah no no i, I do as well and i, I hope uh, I, i'm not disappointed but uh, i'm sure i won't be but uh, anyway um thank you very much for your time today i really enjoyed the chat say so we could chat for hours about all these topics because they're Absolutely. things that I, i'm really interested in myself uh, conversations that we have in the office all the time about emerging tech uh, particularly that that kind of legislation and and the ethics behind it um it's the sort of thing that uh, might might upset the old dinner party now and again but uh, but yeah all, all fascinating information and thank you very much for taking the time out to join us today thank you for being a guest on the show 
um, and uh, must keep in touch. And uh, I'll follow you on LinkedIn and, uh, and and see if there's any other interesting insights. And I'll certainly be following up on the Intel um, sort of uh, revelation on um, on deepfake. So thank you for that yeah. little snippet of information. No, absolutely. Please, please do do. Let's keep in touch. And thank you, Ian, for the invitation. It was an absolute pleasure. Such a fun conversation. And thank you for these all well thought and very relevant questions. And it was really fun. Great. Yeah. Thanks again. And um, you take care of yourself and speak to you soon. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of ASM Connected with OQ Isik. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe now to make sure you never miss an update and check out other episodes in the series. To find out more about the team at ASM Technologies, visit asmtech.com. This is ASM Connected.